In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening and welcome to class two of, what is it, how to really know what is. <laughs> a good skill. It's definitely a useful thing. Handy thing for this world. I don't really know what's going on. Nice to see you all again. Having seen you on most almost everyone on Saturday. Eric, you missed you missed a fun day. And you and Mary Beth and Emily missed an amazing lunch <laughs> at the Thai place. That was the best part. So, <laughs> tonight, tonight we delve, dive into a very thorough presentation of logical reasoning. I know all of us have done this before, right, in some shape or form. We've all gone through logical reasoning and uh, uh, proof statements and theses and things like that, right? The three modes, subject, predicate, evidence, or reason, right? So the introduction by John Donne, I thought it was excellent. And we'll go through all of this quite slowly and carefully since it's difficult and important up to a point. <laughs> Personally, it seemed to me that at a certain point, the chapter got just uh, more detailed and was helpful. But anyway, let's see if we can find that point together. So part five, inferential reasoning. Page 281, The Crucial Role of Reasoning. One of the keen insights that runs throughout the Buddhist tradition is that the ultimate authority for knowledge claims must be one's own experience. That's cool. Not anybody else's, not God, not Buddha, not your mother, not your spouse. While an enormous corpus of literature is of scripture, sorry, is readily available to any Buddhist philosopher. No scriptural passage, even those attributed to the historical Buddha himself, can in itself be used to establish empirical claims, at least according to the Buddhist epistemologists. Even reasoning, which inevitably requires use of concepts, must eventually give way to direct experience, in part because conceptual cognitions are always distorted, in ways which we have previously discussed, and that they blend together the appearing object with the object of engagement, right? They blend together uh, an, 
a general image, a general idea with the real thing. And as we saw in the previous part for the purpose of personal transformation and behavior change, only direct experience, not inferential or conceptual cognition, has the kind of visceral impact necessary for effective change. Yet this emphasis on direct experience stands alongside another key thing. Ordinary experience prompts intuitions that do not conform to the way things really are. At the very least, as noticed previously, our ordinary experience suggests that we have an enduring autonomous self that is the perceiver of perceptions, the feeler of feelings, and the owner or controller of the mind-body system. Also seems like things are continuous. Thus, even though in the end the Buddhist paradigm would have us arrive at a direct experience of, for example, our mind-body system as devoid of any such absolute self, we are starting from a place where a direct experience of selflessness is inaccessible. To get to that point, we must engage in intensive observation and analysis guided by reasoning. Reason, sorry. And as a result, the Buddhist traditions examined in this volume have placed a tremendous emphasis on the crucial importance of rigorous, irrefutable reasoning. Our direct experience is that it feels like we're here. It feels like things are here. And somehow we manage to accept the idea that we're not really here enough to make us explore the issue thoroughly. Three domains. One way to understand the role of reason in these Buddhist traditions is to examine the notion of three domains of inquiry articulated by Dignaga Dharmakirti and subsequent Buddhist epistemologists. The first domain includes things that are directly available to our perceptual experience or more precisely, knowledge claims we can justify directly based upon our experience. So here we have the, the uh, three, threefold classification of types of objects by uh, degree of accessibility. To take again the typical Indian example of, a, of the pot, or water jug, my visual experience of an item on the table in front of me is enough for me to justify the claim there is a pot on the table. There are other claims, however, that I may not be able to make directly from my perception alone. For example, when I see black smoke billowing out of a house, I cannot directly see that there is a fire present. The fire is epistemically, epistemically hidden for me in that it is not directly available to my senses. Nonetheless, I can rationally infer, based on what I can perceive, that there is indeed some incendiary source in that location. This is the second domain. Knowledge claims about epistemically remote objects that I can justify by using an inference or a chain of inferences based in what is directly perceptible. 
key factor of valid inferences is they must be based in directly perceptible experience or events or facts. These first two domains, the directly perceptible and the remote, constitute what we might call an empirical sphere of knowledge, inasmuch as the evidence of the senses is what we fall back on when we are making knowledge claims in these contexts. There is, however, a third domain that transcending the empirical concerns objects that are extremely hidden. These are things that, at least given one's current capacities, cannot be examined in any empirical way for the Buddhist epistemologists such as Dharmakirti and his followers. The only way to justify claims about such trans-empirical things is through the testimony of a reliable person which paradigmatically consists in the words of the Buddha himself as transmitted in the Buddhist scriptures. Importantly, however, Dharmakiti maintains that scripture cannot be used to justify empirical claims. In other words, if some matter of concern can be adjudicated by ordinary perception and empirical inference, then one cannot use scripture to support one's claims. And if there is a conflict between some claim made in scripture and claims that can be empirically justified, then the, the scriptural claim must be rejected. <clears throat> Moreover, according to at least some interpretations, Dharmakirti holds that claims justified by reference to scripture are not truly justified at all. In other words, according to this interpretation, scripture cannot be used to definitively prove or disprove trans-empirical claims. The only, I guess, trans-empirical is beyond empirical. They only provide a, pro a provisional justification that enables one to address some important issue relevant to contemplative practice that, as Dharmakirti puts it, require some answer but cannot be resolved any other way. For our purposes, the upshot of the schema of these three domains is that if we are to detect and correct that false intuitions that emerge from our ordinary experiences, I think this might be a proofreading error do we have any proofreaders in our midst here tonight? Did you find that this statement, this sentence had a proofreading error? For our purposes, the upshot of the scheme of these three domains is that if we are to detect and correct that false intuitions that emerge from our ordinary experiences, and we cannot simply rely on scriptural claims. It seems to me this should say, if we are to detect and correct that, f just get rid of the first that, detect, uh, detect and correct false intuitions. Yeah, it's hard to say if it's clumsy writing or it should be just another word that they meant. Like yeah. those intuitions. 
Right, those false intuitions. If we are to detect and correct those false intuitions that emerge from our ordinary experiences, then we cannot simply rely on scriptural claims. If we are to detect and correct the or those false intuitions. Anyway, of course the teachings, sorry. Of course, the teachings of the Buddha or some other reliable person can help direct us to an area of inquiry, such as a false sense of an absolute self. But from the Buddha's perspective articulated in this volume, in this volume, that inquiry itself must eventually become a purely empirical one. And again, since our ordinary perceptions prompt intuitions that are not the way things truly are, we become especially reliant on empirical inferences that using the reliable aspects of our perceptions can help us see more clearly that we are actually experiencing sorry what we are actually experiencing sort of an interesting conundrum in a little way in that the only valid means of in of uh, knowledge are direct experience and inference and inference must be based on direct experience but our direct experience is uh misleading so how do we understand our direct experience? So I think the crux of it is to understand direct experience in a way that's not misleading by the use of inference, by using inference to correct or to uh, clarify our understanding of our direct experience, something like that. Because we clearly misunderstand our direct experience and we uh, interpret it as support for things not being real, things being truly existent. Okay, inference and its structure. Given the importance of empirical inference in Sanskrit, blah, 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 blah. it is no surprise that an entire section of this volume is devoted to inferential reasoning. This topic appears in early Buddhist sources, but Tignang and Dharmakirti are the key sources for the material presented here to lay the groundwork for our author's articulation of the facets of inferential reasoning. It may be helpful to summarize the core theories concerning the structure and content of inferential reasoning. An inference, or strictly speaking, an inference for oneself is a type of cognition that enables one to know something by virtue of knowing something else. It's like having contacts. If you know so-and-so, then you probably can get in. For Buddhist epistemologists, the basic structure of an inferential cognition looks like this. S is P because of E. What does S, P, and E stand for? Here. S stands for a subject, or more literally, a property possessor. I love that part. That part, just right, that in itself says everything. Is that we think there are subjects, but really all there are are property possessors. And even that's the stretch. Right? Dharman, to which some predicate or property, real estate, Dharma is being attributed. The statement or conceptual cognition, S is P, 
is thus the thesis or proposition that is being established by the inference. The justification for formulating that thesis, the warrant for attributing that predicate to that subject, is the presence of another property that acts as the evidence. <coughs> he too, or linga, a, a demonstration of the different uses of terms in Sanskrit language. Namely, the property that indicates the presence of the property is to be proven. The evidence is the property that indicates the presence of the property to be proven. An example of all this, presuming that I'm looking at some house with smoke billowing, billowing out of it, would be the house. The subject is the locus of fire, is the predicate, because of being a locus of smoke. The word locus, I believe, is used to mean here a place. It's a place of fire because it's a place of smoke or a uh, defined area. In order for an inference of this kind to be valid, three relations must be in place. The subject must have the evidence as its predicate or property. The, must, the, the house must have smoke billowing out of it. Otherwise, the whole thing is false. The president, the, sorry, the presence of the evidence must invariably indicate the presence of the predicate or property P. Wherever smoke occurs, fire must also occur. And the absence of predicate P is invariably concomitant with the absence of the evidence. So first, the forward pervasion. The evidence must invariably indicate the presence of the predicate or the property. The presence of smoke must invariably support the existence of fire. And Conversely, the absence of um, fire is invariably occurs when there is an absence of smoke. If there's no fire, there's definitely no smoke. Now, we all know that these are not ironclad, 100% true statements. Are there instances where there's smoke without fire? What's an example of smoke without fire? Well, you can have mistaken smoke, which is steam from a dryer, and somebody thinks that house is on fire, which somebody did, <laughs> and called the fire department. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's the difference between steam and smoke? And can you vis visually distinguish them reliably? So if you're in the in a place in uh, the hill, back hills of uh, Tennessee and West Virginia, in the western side of those states, there's a series of little hills that have an interesting name. Mary Beth, do you know what what place I'm talking about? There's certain type of mountains. 
what are the Smoky Mountains? What are the Smoky Mountains for for one hundred points? <laughs> you get to choose now. Would you like? to choose the category of evidence or predicates for your next question. <laughs> um, so, you know, there are the smoky mountains and there's a lot of smoke in those mountains, but that's not fire. But there's no fire. So it's that, con you know, condensation, evaporation, or is that smoke? Is it the difference? What's the difference? Smoke has particulates in it. Come on. Somebody. And condensation is water. <laughs> condensation I mean, is water. Mist from the dryer is like water. Yeah. What about like a ember, like a burning ember, a fire that's actually been put out? Mm. You get even more smoke than sometimes when it was actually burning. Yeah, yeah. Is that well, I think you would have to say that there's still fire there in those embers. Because once once they're totally put out, there's I don't think there's any smoke, is there? Steam. Am I muted? No. Steam is based on temperature. So it kind of mm. dissipates and it doesn't really blow around with the wind where smoke... Or, or it evaporates, but the smoke slowly dissipates and blows with the wind. And condensate blows with the wind too. You a see the, yeah. you see like at waterfalls, a lot of smoke. Anyway, okay, so they're trying to make a point here. Uh, these three relations constitute the three modes of a reliable inference, Naya. Introduced by Dignaga and refined by Dormakirti, the theory that a reliable inference must exhibit the three modes of relation among its terms is the distinctive feature of their account of inferential reasoning. The theory emerges in part from Dignaga's interest in categorizing the cases where inferences succeed and our authors acknowledge the importance of Dignaga's efforts by concluding this part with an entire section on his schema of successful and unsuccessful cases, which is a sort of awkward way of saying that they've included a commentary on one of his short, shorter texts. In the interest of simplicity, however, we understand this issue by examining just the three modes that underlied underlie rather uh, Dignaga's cases. As noted above, the first mode amounts to a requirement that the property or thing being used as evidence can be construed as a predicate or quality of the subject of the thesis. S&P in the example above, it must be true that the house is indeed a locus of smoke. One way this can go awry is if there actually is no smoke <laughs> present. That's like the main way. <laughs> it can go awry. In that case, the evidence, namely the smoke, is missing, <laughs> called unestablished. Hate to, 
city or whatever. Another way that this mode can fail is that while the evidence may indeed be present, we're mistaken about the subject that bears that evidence as a property. In the case of our house fire example, perhaps I've mistaken some other structure for a house, and my inference actually should be about a woodshed. This problem becomes more acute when we consider the cases where we need to construct inferences about things, such as the kind of self that Buddhist philosophers refute, that have never existed. He, he makes this, this sort of point a couple of times in this introduction, which is really, I'm so grateful that he does that, where he like uh, helps us understand what's the relevance of all of this complicated analysis of uh, reasoning is that it's used to undermine the sense of self by using uh, analysis and inferential reasoning and it's all related to an object that doesn't it's it's meant to prove that the self doesn't exist and has never existed and so how do you um how do you create statements about something that's not there because usually all of the reasoning is constructed about things that are there so um, i'm very glad that he touched on that and hopefully the authors so to speak of the book will come back to that in a big way at some point soon here we run the danger of having no subject at all. And these kinds of cases are part of what motivates the extensive analysis of consequential reasoning provided by Buddhist theorists, as we will see below. They distinguish consequential reasoning from inferential reasoning, although there's a very close relationship. Moving on to the other two modes, they concern the relationship between evidence and the predicate to be proven, the smoke and the fire in our example. Both of, both of these modes fall under the general rubric of the pervasion between the evidence and the predicate. In short, every case where the evidence, evidence is present necessarily is pervaded by the presence of the predicate. The metaphor of one thing pervading or spreading to another suggests a Venn diagram. So this goes back to the four relationships between phenomena that we have looked at since last fall of identical or mutually exclusive on the extremes or overlapping or one including the other. And uh, the idea with that whole scheme was to build up to a way of identifying very clearly the relationship between the predicate and the evidence in terms of their pervasion of one and the other, of one by the other. So in this case, the uh, predicate has to pervade the evidence. Applying this diagram of overlapping sets to our example, all cases where fire is present pervade all the cases where smoke is present. Thus, even though there are cases where there is fire without smoke, anytime there is smoke, there must be fire. So in this case, it's a, it's a one thing is included within the other type of relationship as opposed to an identical relationship or an overlapping relationship. 
And that's the requirement in this sort of situation. Um, and this means that smoke can act as evidence or as an indicator of fire, even when we cannot perceive the fire directly. It's the evidence of a fire. This the relationship of pervasion encompasses two of the three modes. And they are articulated as the positive pervasion and the negative pervasion. The simplest way to articulate them is simply to say, for the positive pervasion, whatever the when sorry wherever the evidence is present, the predicate is present. And for the negative, one can say where the predicate is absent, the evidence is absent. Students of logic will recognize that these statements are logically equivalent. And while this is true, and this is a really interesting nuance, and this is something that um, we came upon years ago. Morgan actually came upon some uh, writings about whether you needed the third aspect of the pervasion, since logically it was really incorporated into the second mode. And the third mode was sort of logically extraneous, but he says um, one must be cautious here because the relationship between the evidence and predicate is not simply a logical one, which is a sort of weird thing to say. Let's see what he, how he explains that. Instead, it concerns the very natures of these things themselves, and thus it is a nature relation instead of a logical relation. Without going into great detail, so hopefully we'll return to that nuance later, but uh, we can note that the notion of a nature relation emerges from a fundamental insight articulated, especially by Dharmic Kirti, namely that the relationship between the evidence and the predicate is not a matter of mere co-occurrence. Here, Dharmakirti is concerned with cases where we mistakenly believe that something can stand as evidence for something else. For example, it might happen to be the case on a particular mango tree that every mango we picked from a particular branch was ripe because it is on that branch. Oh, sorry, every on that particular branch was ripe. We might just infer that the next fruit on that branch is ripe because it is on that branch. But this inference is not for Dharmakirti a reliable one because it fails to eliminate the possibility that it is mere happenstance that the ripe fruit were on that branch. Instead, the nature of the evidence must relate to the predicate's nature in such a way that it is impossible for the evidence to be present while the predicate is absent. So in this case, it is impossible for smoke to be present where there is no fire. In short, evidence and predicates stand in a relationship of what Dharmakirti calls the necessary relation of unaccompanied non-occurrence, which <clears throat> is sort of like a third cousin once removed by marriage and divorce, something like that. If the evidence is not accompanied by the predicate, then the evidence simply cannot occur. Cause a relationship for Dharmakirti, or an, uh, in this case, they're saying a nature relationship between the two. That the nature of smoke is that it comes from fire. 
where is that? Is a offshoot of fire. For Dharmakirti and all later Buddhist epistemologists, this necessary relation between the evidence, such as smoke and the predicate, such as fire, occurs in just two ways. Either the, either the evidence is the effect of the predicate, so the smoke is the effect of the fire, or the evidence is a property whose essential nature requires the presence of the predicate. Uh, smoke is an essential nature which requires which we requires the presence of fire. These are known respectively as effect evidence and nature evidence. Two of the three types of evidence that I introduced last week. The third type of evidence was anyone remember? <laughs> Let's see. Well, the third type of evidence was non-occurrence. Anyway. Our authors discuss these at some length, and effect evidence is perhaps fairly straightforward. Of course, determining exactly when a cause or relation is actually in place poses many problems in terms of time sequence, presumably, as well as locus, but mostly time. But we need not concern ourselves with that issue here. Instead, let us turn to the case of nature evidence. And the meaning of this term is perhaps less obvious than effect evidence. Yet this form of evidence plays an especially important role in Buddhist practice. Typical example for nature evidence would be something like this. This thing is a tree because of being an oak. To unpack this in straightforward terms, we can say that the relationship between evidence and predicate amounts to this, something that has the property of being an oak, which is the evidence, invariably has the property of being a tree, which is the predicate. Because the features of the object that are required for us to correctly refer to it as an oak already include all of the features that are needed for us to correctly call it a tree a tree. Although much more can be said about nature evidence, the main point is that, as Dharma Kirti puts it, this form of evidence is especially helpful for those of us who are confused about the way we are using certain concepts. For example, on one level we may be quite correct to know that a pot is something that is causally produced, but we may not recognize that when we use the term causally produced, we have already we already have grounds for saying that a pot is necessarily impermanent. Now we do because we know that those are synonymous. Produced and impermanent are synonymous. Of course, unless we have a problematic attachment to pots, <laughs> it may not be so crucial to understand the full implications of their causal nature. 
But when we turn to, for example, the constituents of our mind-body system, we might readily acknowledge that they are causally produced. But we still somehow believe that they're not impermanent. Which is a really good example, and a really good point, a really important point is that we all believe that our uh, sense of self has changed and developed over time and has matured, let's say. But um, that means that our sense of self is impermanent. Whereas we usually think of, well, it's continuous and morphing at the same time. And we don't see those as contradictory necessarily. The average person on the street, so to speak, doesn't necessarily see those as contradictory things. And yet they are. Or to use a, a, play, a parallel example, we may not fully recognize that if we can speak of ourselves as born, which we readily acknowledge, then the very use of this term means that we must die. And given this example, it is perhaps obvious why nature evidence plays a critical role in practice. Given this example, it is perhaps obvious why nature evidence plays a critical role in practice. Recall that while direct experience is the bedrock, the name of a town in the Flintstones is of our knowledge, our ordinary experience prompts numerous delusions. Nature evidence plays an especially prominent role in enabling us to see how what we readily acknowledge in our own experience has implications that we have failed to uncover. In another key example, while I may readily acknowledge that I engage in causal actions in the world, I may not recognize that merely by seeing myself as causally engaged, I am therefore necessarily interdependent and not an independent autonomous self. This is another huge point. Uh, he used this in regard to the self. And uh, so we, we tend to think of ourselves as autonomous and independent. But the fact that we also can interact with other phenomena means that we're not independent. We are interdependent and we're not autonomous. And more importantly, if there's a God that created reality or the world, that God is not independent and autonomous and unchanging and impermanent. That God is impermanent. Much more can be said about the various aspects of inference unpacked by our authors. Numerous issues of great importance come to mind. The type of entailment, this is a legal term, meaning what, uh, karma requited required rather by the notion of a pervasion the requirement to ground inference in concrete observable cases 
The problem of determining when a necessary relation of unaccompanied non-occurrence is in place, and so on. To this list should also be added the presence of a third type of evidence, non-perception, which is a special form of perception, which uses the principles of evidence of sorry, which uses the principles of effect evidence and nature evidence to negate rather than establish some thesis. But these issues can be explored through our author's efforts themselves. And with that in mind, let us turn briefly to examining two other key aspects of inference, proof statements and consequences. There's consequences to your actions. Proof statements. So far, we have been discussing inference as a type of cognition. In contrast, a proof statement is a way of inducing an inferential cognition in another person. And as such, it is also called inference for another. So from this sentence, can you infer of the two types of inference, inference for oneself and inference for another? What is inference for oneself? It is inference as a type of cognition. Is inference for oneself, and inference in terms of a proof statement is inference for others, for another. And they're different but related, and we'll get into their uh, fine differences and so forth. In the classical formulation found in Indian Buddhist text, a proof statement has an intriguing feature. The thesis to be proven is not explicitly stated. Instead, one lays out the ingredients, so to speak, that should lead one's listeners, listener to themselves to have a kind of aha moment in which they come to realize the truth of the unstated but clearly implied thesis. So proof statements start with uh, consequences. The proof statement begins with a statement of the pervasion, and generally just the positive pervasion is stated of the two types of pervasion that the... Uh, that wherever the subject is present, the evidence is present. Consider the case where one wishes to induce an inference in another person such that their mortality is recognized. <laughs> Somebody that doesn't believe they're going to die. Sort of funny. One would begin by stating the positive pervasion. Whoever is human is mortal. <laughs> Importantly, so human is the evidence, is the reason. If you're human, then you are mortal. Uh, importantly, the pervasion itself must be accompanied by a concrete case that is acknowledged by the discussants. This is an odd term. Uh, as exemplifying the pervasion. And so one might add, as in the case of Socrates, <laughs> as if it's it's universally acknowledged that Socrates was mortal, because why? What happened to Socrates? He drank the hemlock and he died. He drank the tea brewed from hemlock and died. And the tea brewed from hemlock is poisonous. Is that right? Has anyone ever drunk hemlock tea? It's a specialty. 
at, at uh, my store. <laughs> MLT discounted today. Importantly, the provision itself must be accompanied by a concrete case. Oh, I said this. Sorry. One of the purposes of offering an exemplifying case is that it compels a consensus about the pervasion, but it also prevents one from appealing to types of reasoning that cannot be grounded in experience. Having stated the pervasion and its exemplification, one then states the relationship between the subject of the evidence, between the subject and the evidence. You <laughs> are human if one's interlocutor has fully accepted the pervasion, whoever is human is mortal, then simply by saying, oh, by the way, you were human, one should be able to directly cause them to experience an inferential cognition whose content is, I am mortal. Traditionally, one then ends the proof statement by noting the type, I don't think you can hyphenate noting in that way, because then it becomes nodding. Anyway, traditionally one ends the proof statement by noting the type of evidence used. In this particular case, one would say, the evidence used here is nature evidence. It should be an odd thing to say to your parents. A proof statement or inference for another is often deployed in the context of philosophical debate. And historically, it seems that kings and other benefactors would actually sponsor formal debates between philosophers from different traditions in the absence of large sporting events. Since institutions, large and small, temples and monasteries, for example, required considerable support, the motivation to win such debates was considerable. The Mayans had like basketball games, right, where the losers died, and uh, the Romans had uh, gladiators, and um, now we have soccer matches where only the faint of heart are stampeded to death. And uh, in, these, in India, they had debates. Indian philosophers in multiple traditions, including Buddhism, discussed at length the ways one can win debates by any means possible, even by confusion, misdirection. They were desperate for their royal patronage so they could use subterfuge to defeat their enemies. Yet the Buddhist approach to proof statements suggests that the main goal was not simply to win. The Buddhists were strange people. Others would do anything just to win. But the Buddhists actually wanted the other party to agree with them. They wanted to be self, they wanted to be validated by the opponent. Instead, the point of the proof statement is to provide another person with the information that they can use to come to a particular understanding on their own. In other words, to return to the example above, one does not directly say, you're mortal. Instead, one provides the conditions for the other person to conclude, ah, I see, I must be mortal. The goal is thus not to simply win the debate by proving the interlocutor to be wrong, Interlocutor, interlocutor. Rather, one seeks to induce an understanding of the other person in a fashion that might even be characterized as 
therapeutic, therapeutic debate as opposed to traumatic debate. That's neat. One problem, however, is that this approach to proof statements does not enable one to engage with persons who hold beliefs about completely unreal entities, which is just about everybody. Recall that the evidence must be observed as a quality or feature of the subject or thing under discussion. But what if that subject is a unicorn or a square circle? I love that example. Well, what if the pervasion, the relation between the evidence and the predicate to be proven that a person holds to be true actually has no exemplifying case precisely because it is impossible? I might absurdly believe that if something, if something is a square circle, then it is necessarily blue. But the theory of proof statements presented here does not enable one to dissuade someone from holding such beliefs in square circles. In such cases, one must turn to another mode of argumentation, the consequence. Unless we get the famous TV show, Truth or Consequences. As we have noted, the Indian Buddhist traditions that form the core of the volumes in this series are often structured in terms of an ascending scale of analysis, and the highest or subtle, subtlest level of analysis is a version of the anti-realist. <laughs> Madhyamaka, known as the uh, Prasangika, anti-realist Madhyamaka, known as the Prasangika, 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 literally the consequentialists. The problem of trying to bring others to a particular understanding of one's own position is especially acute for the consequentialists because, to put it in simple terms, consequentialists hold that all ordinary persons are caught up in the delusion that things truly exist in the way that they appear. Thus, an ordinary person, when I see a when I see a pot on the table in front of me, it seems to be, as an ordinary person, it seems to be objectively real from its own side, so to speak, without in any way being dependent on the way I see it or even on other causes and conditions. It simply exists on its own. Now, earlier he said that um, the direct perception of the pot on the table was a key feature. Now that very same direct perception is a misleading starting point. Oh, let's see, from its... Uh, it seems to be objectively real from its own side, so to speak, without in any way being dependent on the way I see it, or even on other causes and conditions. It simply exists on its own for the consequentialists. However, that kind of objectively real autonomous pot does not exist at all. Yet if they are to lead me to that understanding, how could they use a proof statement? For me, there's a truly real thing called a pot in front of me, but from that from their perspective, I might as well be saying that there is a square circle or a merry bachelor in front of me, which would be a very fun twist on the on the uh, series of TV shows called The Bachelor, Bachelor, and Married Bachelors. <laughs> How 
then can we have a discussion about it? The fault of having no subject at all would continually apply. This is where the style of reasoning that employs consequences plays a crucial role. And so, as you can, this is also a little bit more of a, a subtler or fuller, richer way of understanding the, the distinction between the prasangika or prasangika and the swatantrika madhyamakas. The swatantrika start by agreeing with the direct perception of ordinary beings of things existing in the way that they appear, and they then they try to get them to agree that they don't appear that way, they don't exist in the way they appear. Whereas the consequentialists never start from that uh, position of agreeing with the opponent that things are there. The case of the consequentialists, uh, let's see. The case of the consequentialist is an especially obvious one where consequential reasoning must be employed, but even issues at a lower level of analysis may be conveyed to a conversation part, and by using consequences, our authors thus choose a simpler example. The, the failure to see that a causal entity which comes from causes and produces effects must necessarily be impermanent or in flux. Using this example, our authors offer a detailed discussion of reasoning used sorry, through consequences, including a schematic analysis of eight different ways the pervasion, which is the relationship between the evidence and the predicate, can be configured without reproducing their rich analysis. Here we can simply note some key features of this style of reasoning. Overall, consequential reasoning begins with the context of a false belief, for example, that a pot or a jug of water is permanent or unchanging. This harkens, which is a odd term, but it harkens back to our ordinary intuition. When we see a carafe of water on the table, we do not generally believe that it is constantly changing at each moment. The consequentialists would focus especially on the problem of the pot itself. Why do we think that there is an objectively existent entity called a pot in the first place? But at a lower level of analysis, where the existence of something we call a pot is accepted without much attention, sorry, contention, Consequential reasoning addresses especially the relationships among the various properties that we attribute to it. For example, in a quite straightforward way, we might believe that a pot is permanent, and yet it is capable of changing state such that in one moment it's empty and in a few moments later it is filled with water. That was not a very convincing change in state for me. Okay, in this context, consequential reasoning brings us to an aha moment in which we recognize the way that this belief is incompatible with what we experience. Obviously, a jug filled with water and one that is empty are not quite the same, even in terms of being a jug. In what way is the jug actually different, given the situation of being filled with water or not? Is the jug different, Mary Beth? It's heavier. The jug itself is heavier? With water in it. Water. It's heavier. 
It has more water in it. But a jug is something, it holds something. But if it's full, it can't hold anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so it's heavier and uh, it's, uh, its utility is questioned in certain cases. Okay, anyway. And this consequent, uh, let's see. The point of consequential reasoning, however, is not to force this reasoning upon one's interlocutor directly instead, and again, in an arguably therapeutic fashion, one simply engages one's interlocutor to arrive on their own to the realization that their belief was false. Here again, we see how the Buddhist approach to many issues, including styles of reasoning, are inextricably linked to the practical task of personal transformation. Okay, so that's the introduction. Now we launch into the presentation of the material. See some references. If you're really into this and want to read more about it, you can check these out in particular. The book by John Donne. The author of the introduction called The Foundation of Dharmakirti's Philosophy. Reasoning and Rationality. Thus far, we have discussed how, when conceptual and non conceptual cognitions engage their objects, they do so via an image, as well as okay, so the statement conceptual and non-conceptual cognitions engaging their objects through an image immediately indicates that the use of the term image is not a conceptual image, I believe, as well as how respectively they engage through exclusion and affirmation. Now one might ask, when impaired, unimpaired subjects engage with our object, what means are there for comprehending an object's mode of existence just as it is? In response, it is said that the means by which the mind engages with reality are the four forms of rationality. First, second, consequential reasoning, which is used as a way to eliminate distorted conviction and three proof statements, which are used as a way to eliminate doubt oscillating between two points of view, and inferential evidence, which is used as a way to explicitly ascertain the object once those distorted cognitions have been dispelled. These four means are encompassed within the science of inferential evidence. What is called the science of inferential evidence means the same as the science of inferential re reasoning. So this interest, this scheme, this list presents an interesting scheme, a sort of progression. Um, in the same way, like when we looked at the seven uh, pairs of types of, uh, the seven types of mind, going from doubt to inferential cognition and then subsequent cognition uh, was presented in the form of a progression chronologically or sequentially, these are also 
to go back through them, it is said that the means by which the mind engages with reality are one of four forms of rationality, so we're about to go through that, and then consequential reasoning, which is used as a way to eliminate distorted conviction, and then having eliminated that, then we can present proof statements, which are used as a way to eliminate doubt oscillating between two points of view. So the idea being that once you eliminate distorted conviction through consequential reasoning, one, one may not be yet thoroughly convinced of the way that things are. And so then you present proof statements, which helps one not remain in doubt that vacillates, but instead cleave to the correct way of understanding the reality of what is. And then um, inferential evidence is used as a way to um, conclusively identify the situation. What are the four forms of rationality? Uh, as cited earlier, Buddha himself stated in the sutras, and this is in, let's see, what sutra is this in? On its source, see note 36 in volume one of this series. I hate it when they do that. <laughs> they tell you to go look at a different book's footnotes. That's painful. Okay, I'll get over it. Breathe. Monks and scholars, just as you test gold by burning, cutting, and polishing it, so too well examine my speech. Do not accept it merely out of respect, as these words suggest when the Buddha's followers engaged with the meaning of the scriptures. Scriptures, they didn't emphasize faith and belief, but rather began with finding certainty based on correct rational analysis. This required establishing a realistic account of the object, which is an interesting proposition given the fact that the Buddha, having lived 2,500 years ago, laid down a set of rules for monks and nuns which might not be universally applicable today. And so you would think that uh, over time, they would be per periodically, they would be uh, reevaluated, these uh, rules. But they pretty much cleave to them as they are without changing them. An important method propounded, propounded by the masters of the London Monastery for analyzing such an object is known as the Buddhist scriptures, as known in the Buddhist scriptures as the four forms of rationality, first based on the way in which things exist in reality, one investigates the thing's own character or nature. Second, based on the inquiry into its nature, one investigates how each thing functions naturally according to its own character. Anybody recognize this list from anywhere else?
Is that the Venn diagram stuff? No. No. It's in the uh, six investigations. Did I ever mention I hate logic? <laughs> that's log that makes sense logical. Okay, here we go. So this is the Treasury of Knowledge, Stages of Meditation of Shamatha and Vipassana from TOK, Treasury of Knowledge. And there's the classification of Vipassana according to its essential nature. There's the four types, the three gateways, and the six investigations. Meaning, thing, character, direction, time, reasoning. The latter being of four kinds, dependence, function, logical proof, and nature. So it's the sixth of the six investigations. And here's a repetition of, the, of that sixth part. Sixth-fold classification known as the six investigations. The sixth is investigation of reasoning is of four types. Reasoning of dependence, investigation of dependence of an effect upon causing conditions. Reasoning of function is, uh, refers to performance by each phenomena of its own particular function, such as fire burning. And the reason of logical proof refers to establishing the validity of propositions in accordance with valid cognition. The three types of valid cognition, namely direct, inferential, and the valid cognition of trustworthy scriptures. The reason of nature refers to their conventional nature, their inconceivable nature, and their abiding nature. Okay, so we've seen these guys before in a different context. Interesting that they're used in in this different in that way. Second, based on the inquiry into its nature, one investigates how each thing functions naturally according to its own character. Third, based on that, one investigates that how each depends on another. That is, one establishes the way they exist based on relations, such as the relations relation between cause and effect, or the relation between part and whole, or the triad of agent, action, and object, and so on. Fourth, when analyzing the basis of those three forms of rationality, one sets forth inferential reasons such that if this is the case, then that must be the case. If this exists, then that must exist. If this is not the case, then that cannot be the case. If this does not exist, then that cannot exist. So the order of three and four was switched from the six investigations. It's a different order. This type of inferential reason is able to prove whatever point is to be proven. Thus, the four forms of rationality concern. Based one, based on how things actually exist in reality, what is each thing's own essential nature? It's good that they sum this up because these are uh, very important. Based on that nature, how does it function? Based on that nature and function, how does one thing exist in dependence upon another? Dependence, interdependence. Based on those kinds of relations of nature, function, and interdependence, how should inferential evidence be applied? 
you might notice that they're quite similar to the three types of evidence as uh, categorizing uh, the three types of uh, evidence used in a syllogism where we have nature evidence, function evidence, and non-perception. And here we have nature, um, function, and dependence. Presumably function and dependence have been collapsed into one in the terms of the types of evidence. And let's see, based on those kinds of relations, how should inferential evidence be applied? Okay, each of these four forms of rationality is identified in the unraveling this intention sutra, which is the famous Mahayana Sutra of the Third Turning, which has an eighth chapter dialogue between the Buddha and the Bodhisattva Maitreya about shamatha and Vipassana, which forms the basis, the root for the tradition of shamatha Vipassana in the Mahayana tradition. So each of these four forms of rationality is identified in that sutra as follows. Rationality should be understood to have four aspects. Rationality of dependence, rationality of functionality, rationality of inferential proof, and rationality of nature. Also, the compendium of knowledge says, what reasoning is used to analyze phenomena when analyzing phenomena diligently? Similar to saying, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Um, there are four forms of rationality. Rash, uh, rationality of dependence, functionality, inferential proof, and nature. When commenting in detail on each of the four forms of rationality based on the unraveling, the intention of sutra, sanghas, shravaka levels. So they go to great length to show that this is a, a widely known and used scheme of rationality of four types of rash, reasoning or rationality in all these different sources sutra sources um, compendium of knowledge which is the text by a sangha and then another text by a sangha so it's not that widely used but it's pretty much between the buddha maitreya and a sangha as usual in Asanga's famous text, the Shravaka Levels in Sanskrit, Shravaka Bhumi, he first speaks about the rationality of dependence as follows, which is uh, usually the, well, the order is uh, different here. What is the rationality of dependence? Dependence has two aspects, dependence in terms of production and dependence in terms of designation. We've seen this earlier. We saw earlier how there's these different types of uh, interdependence. It's interdependence in terms of uh, causes and effects, and there's interdependence, rather, in terms of um, the nature of things in, uh, as being com uh, composed of parts, so the whole is dependent upon the parts. That had a special fancy name, something with an M, when we were doing the Nagarjuna class. We went through these different types of dependence from that article by John Jan Wester, Westerhoff. It was a 
nem, nem, some sort of dependence, that word with an M that meant dependence on parts. Anyway, with regard to dependence in terms of production, the production of the aggregates is dependent on those causes and conditions to which the aggregates are produced. The dependence of the aggregates is dependent on the collection of names, phrases, and letters to which the aggregates are designated. These are respectively called dependence in production and dependence in designation in the case of the aggregates. So causal and um, compounded. Dependence in production and dependence in designation are a form of rationality or process or method for examining the production and designation of the aggregates. Therefore, they are called the rationality of dependence. Second, Shravaka level speaks about the rationality of functionality, the second of the four. What is the rationality of functionality? The aggregates which are produced by their own respective cause and conditions engage in their own respective functions. For example, the eye functions to see forms, the ear functions to hear sounds, and so on up to the mind functions to know phenomena. Visible form is construed as the eye's object of experience, sound as the ears, and so on. Up to phenomena being construed as the mind's object of experience. When you go through the ayatanas, you have the uh, faculty and the object of that faculty and the object of the mental factory, facti, fac, uh, faculty, <laughs> sorry, is phenomena, dharmas. In ways similar to other cases, things thus function causally in relation to each other. And the rationality, the process or method for examining this is called the rationality of functionality. Third, concerning the rationality of inferential proof, it is stated in the Shravaka. It is a state in the Shravaka levels in the past that begins. What is the rationality of inferential proof? The aggregates being impermanent or dependently arisen or in the nature of suffering. And the passage ends with, this is called the rationality of inferential proof. You all know the passage, I'm sure, from the Shravaka levels. That was a joke. Fourth, concerning, unfortunately it doesn't quote the passage. What does he say? 402. Do they... This text is not translated, unfortunately, 402. He just gives the section. And T-O-H and P-D, they don't define anywhere, do they? Do they have a list of abbreviations? I couldn't find any. But uh, T-O-H refers to the Tohoku uh, catalog of the uh, Buddhist scriptures in the Japanese system. And I believe P-D refers to the Paiderma, which is one of the famous... Uh, compilations of the conjure and tenger and then in the Buddhist tradition prior to the I think it comes from the um, Songpu tradition which predated the Kadamba anyway um, force concerning the rationality of nature Shravaka level says what is the rationality of nature it says followers why are the aggregates like this? And why does the world exist in this way? Why is solidity the defining characteristics of earth? Wetness the defining characteristics of water? Heat the defining characteristic of fire? And mobility the defining characteristic of wind? 
Why is the grass green and the sky blue? Why are the aggregates impermanent? Why is nirvana peace? Similarly, why is the defining characteristic of form that which is able to obstruct the defining characteristic of feeling? that which is experienced, the defining characteristic of discernment, that which distinguishes the defining characteristic of conditioning factors, that which directly conditions. Feeling should have been that which experiences, by the way, just for our uh, proofreader here, and our editor, uh, let's see, and the defining character of consciousness, that which knows, such is their nature, the nature of those phenomena, their character, it is the way they are. <laughs> it's the way things are. That nature is itself here a form of rationality, process, or method. Similarly, in order to comprehend and bear in mind, either it is like this or otherwise or not at all. In all cases, one relies just on the nature of things. This rationality of just the nature of things is called the rationality of nature and uh, summed up in a famous TV show called Dragnet from the 1950s by the actor named something or other who I have no idea. Just the facts, ma'am. Shravaka level speaks about three kinds of rationality of nature. Sorry, the rationality of nature commonly known in the world, such as fire being hot and water wet, the rationality of inconceivable nature. How do you conceive of the inconceivable nature? Maybe while you're asleep, maybe after dinner, slowly, um, which lies beyond the comprehension of most people and the rationality of ultimate nature, such as the ultimate nature reality of things. How does that differ from the inconceivable nature? It's inconceivable. This text says, through the rationality of nature in regard to just how things are, or their commonly known nature, their inconceivable nature, or their abiding ultimate nature, one attends to it. One does not think about it, nor conceptualize it. In this way, one seeks rationality. In these ways, Travaka Levels explains in detail each of the four forms of rationality. Thus, the rationality of dependence in the case of causally conditioned things such as a sprout is that for it to be produced depends on its causes. A seed and so on dependence in production means that something that is a result has the nature or character of depending on its own causes and conditions. The same principle applies to dependence and designation which concerns parts and wholes or collections and members that are parts of these collections. Consider, for example, a pot and the components that are parts of the pot, or consider letters, words, phrases, and statements which must be understood as things having a nature where one depends upon another. Boom, done. The rationality of functionality needs to be understood as follows. Conditioned things that arise from causes and conditions have the intrinsic quality or natural disposition to perform their own specific functions. For example, the eye functions to see forms, fire functions to burn, wind functions to move, and so on. The rationality of inferential proof is an investigation of the causes and effect nature and so on. Something that needs to be proven that is not perceptually evident. It is inferential evidence that establishes this without contradicting perception and so forth, the three types of valid cognition. 
Um, examples include proving something's impermanence because it is produced and proving the presence of fire from that smoke. Finally, the rationality of nature concerns, for example, that fire is hot, that water is wet, and that the aggregates and such like are conditioned by causes and conditions. These are the essence of those things. Um, the rationale, let's see, since their essence is also naturally there, that kind of character in nature is called the rationality of nature. Also, when one appeals to the rationality of nature, it is like the final limit of explanation or understanding. If someone asks, why is it the nature of fire to be hot? The answer is simply, it is fire's nature to be hot. That is how things are. Also, such questions as, why is a physical object obstructive? Or why is it the nature of clear and cognizing consciousness to experience can only be answered by saying that it is the way it is. There is no other reason. That's the way it is. Consequential reasoning. We should be able to finish this in another 13 minutes. No problem. The remainder of this section is only 20 pages left. <laughs> Consequential reason is the means by which a distorted conviction is eliminated in the explanations of the eight or 16 categories of logic discussed by classical Indian epistemologists. Consequences are referred to as refutations. Dignaga's introduction to entering into valid reasoning, for example, says proof statements and refutations, along with their fallacious forms, serve to make others understand perception and inferential cognition, along with their fallacious forms, serve to make make oneself understand. So this is this distinction of basically inferential reasoning for oneself is through perception and inferential cognition linked together, or inferential cognition using perception. And inference for others is based on proof statements and refutations. This identifies the eight categories of reasoning correct and fallacious proof statements. So each member or element of this verse has a positive and a negative or correct and incorrect. Three and four are correct and fallacious refutations, which was the second member of the verse. And the third member of the verse was perception. Uh, correct and fallacious perceptions, and then finally inferences, correct and fallacious among these. The latter four categories are methods that enable oneself to ascertain the object of knowledge. Moreover, since a reliable cognition ascertaining the hidden object of knowledge is an inference, and a reliable cognition ascertaining perceptually evident object of knowledge is valid perception, there are two valid cognitions, perception and inference. That's it. Correspondingly, given that when one follows other types of cognition, one is led astray, their counterparts, fallacious perception, fallacious inference, are taught in order to eliminate such sources of error. The first four categories are methods to induce ascertainment in others after having understood it for oneself. Refutations are taught in order to demolish a distorted conviction. Proof statements are taught in order to clear away a doubt that oscillates between two points. The two fallacious kinds are taught for the purposes of eliminating sources of error. The Garda's Vidalia Sutra, translated as finely woven, says, valid cognition and the object known are connected. 
this passage identifies 16 categories of logic. It's sort of hard to imagine that that little sentence identifies 16 categories of logic. Maybe it's the full passage from which that sentence is drawn. But anyway, there's valid cognition, object of knowledge, doubt, purpose, example, tenet, components of inference, reasoning, ascertainment, debate, presentation, refutation, fallacious inference, quibble. <laughs> quibble is a very specific form of interaction, quibbling. <laughs> and uh, futile rejoinder. <laughs> and humor no defeat. In general, there are two types of cognition, one that realizes its object and the other that does not. The latter has three types, simply not realizing the object, distortedly conceiving it, and doubting. The latter, not realizing it, has three types, simply not realizing, is one type of not realizing, distortedly conceiving it, and doubting. Within distorted conceiving, which is the second of the two types of not realizing it, an object. Um, there is reification, sometimes called superimposition, which involves viewing something non-existent to be existent, and denial, which involves viewing that which is um, existent to be non-existent. That's for reification. There are the following two types of reification. Intellectually acquired reification, which grasps objects owing to certain reasoning or philosophical beliefs. And this is like the two types of self. The belief, two types of belief in the self is acquired ignorance and there's innate ignorance. And acquired ignorance is what we develop throughout our lifetimes by virtue of hearsay, rumor, uh, what other people say, and uh, so forth. And then there's innate, naturally arising ignorance, or in this case, uh, reification, uh, that which does not grasp in the manner just described. So it doesn't use philosophical beliefs or reasoning, and therefore it is shared by all sentient beings, even those that don't have reasoning philosophical beliefs, such as some dogs. Among these, the kinds of distorted conception that are dispelled by logical consequences are primarily the intellectually formed reifications and denials. So basically, they don't extrapolate on this, but the way that the path is meant, is said to work, rather, not meant, but is said to work is that we use inferential cognition to overcome the acquired ignorance, and then we use direct perception to overcome the innate ignorance, direct perception, in the, uh, using the uh, type of direct perception of non-perception of the self or the true nature of reality, not perceiving that, directly not perceiving it, overcomes the belief in it. Whereas some people say that we, we directly perceive emptiness, which makes emptiness into a thing, which is weird, but anyway, the meaning of consequential reasoning and its types. And this goes on for, well, let's see, so, suppose someone posits as evidence something that their opponent accepts saying. If what you accept were so, then this, then that would follow, conveying a contradiction to the opponent's fallacious, fallacious rather, thesis by drawing out unwanted consequences. This is called a consequence. 
for example, say someone is convinced that sound is permanent, you can put forward the consequence, then it follows that the subject sound is unproduced because it's it's permanent. It just nobody creates sound, it's just there. Since the opponent perceives that sound is produced by cause and conditions, he or she accepts that it is produced. Says, oh, I'm sorry, of course it's produced. So in this case, the thing that the opponent is asserting permanence is put to the evidence. If sound were permanent, just as you say that it would be unproduced. An unwanted meaning that is sound is unproduced is an absurd consequence given the opponent's other assumptions. Therefore, in terms of the etymology, it is called a consequence because an unacceptable conclusion follows from the opponent's assertions or because a certain consequence is expressed. To identify the subject of debate, the predicate and the evidence of the consequence, let us use the following an example. Subject, predicate, and evidence. It follows that the subject sound is unproduced because it is permanent. In this consequence, sound is the subject of debate unproduced the predicate or the unwanted consequence and permanent is the evidence. The thesis of this consequence is sound is unproduced. The actual provision is if it is a permanent, if it is permanent, then it must be unproduced. The opposite of the predicate is produced and the opposite of the evidence is impermanent. As explained, so um, the consequence uses the fallacious syllogism to point out the correct reality. Um, as explained in volume one, a dispute may respond to a consequence with one of the following two, following four replies. I accept why the evidence is not established and get lost. <laughs> There is no, to, to avoid French, there is no provision. Consequences are of two types, correct and fallacious. The definition of a correct consequence is a consequence that through using evidence and a provision established from the opponent's perspective, entails a consequence unacceptable to the opponent, and the opponent cannot answer coherently. Moksha Karagupta's language of logic says, what is it that is being referred to here? As a consequence, it is a form of reasoning that yields a consequence unacceptable to the opponent by means of a logical provision that has been established by valid cognition. Now that's a great sentence, but to use the term in the definition of its, uh, you know, to use the same, when you're defining a term, to use that term in its definition is a little bit odd. Anyway, he was a good guy. I don't want to complain about him. Correct consequences are of two types. A correct consequence implying a proof and a correct consequence not implying a proof. The definition of a correct consequence implying a proof is a correct consequence in which the inverse is characterized by the three modes. So a correct consequence um, implies a correct proof statement which has the three modes. For example, consider an opponent accepts that sound is permanent as established by valid cognition that whatever is permanent must be unproduced. The opponent also knows that sound is produced. Mm -hmm. I see what's coming. 
for this type of opponent, we can posit a consequence such as it follows that the subject sound is unproduced because it's permanent. This consequence brings to mind the three modes of a correct inference. The subject sound is impermanent because it is produced. Here produced, which is the inverse of the consequences. Predicate is now put as the evidence and impermanent, which is the inverse of the consequences. Evidence is now put as the predicate of the thesis. So you negate the predicate and the evidence and then you switch them around as predicate and evidence in, in order to create the correct uh, proof statement. This form of consequences that's called implying a proof. In a correct consequence implying a proof, the opponent must accept the evidence because it is permanent in the example above. But he cannot have established this by valid cognition, for if he had established the evidence um, of sound being permanent by valid cognition, then the thesis to be proven of sound is impermanent in the above example by the inference implied by the consequence would be contradicted by valid cognition. So you can't have a consequence that implies a valid proof that's contradicted by valid cognition. Also, the opponent must have established the pervasion by valid cognition. For if one had not established it by valid cognition, then the negative pervasion of the inference that it implies would not be established. Also, the opponent must, which is the same thing, but talking about the uh, Anyway, also the opponent must have established the negation of the consequences thesis by valid cognition. That it is not the case that sound is unproduced. For if not, then recognition of the evidence being an attribute of the subject that sound is produced in the inference implied by the consequence would not be established. A little bit more. Uh, the definition of a correct consequence not implying a proof is a correct consequence in which the inverse is not characterized by the three modes. So in a correct consequence not implying a proof is a co correct consequence in which the inverse is not characterized by the three modes. Consider, for example, someone who was established by means of valid cognition that sound is produced and accepted that it is permanent. Totally contradictory. He is also established by means of valid cognition that whatever is produced must be impermanent. From these features of that person's position, we can draw out a consequence such as it follows that the subject sound is impermanent because it is produced. It follows that the subject sound is impermanent because it is produced. This consequence does not apply a proof. This is because there's no correct inferential evidence in which the opposite of the predicate in this consequence permanent is put as the evidence and the opposite of evidence unproduced is put as the predicate of the thesis. Um, what is going on here? From these features, though, we can draw out a consequence that the subject sound is impermanent. This consequence does not imply a proof. 
In brief, the function of a correct consequence implying a proof is as follows. That a correct consequence that cannot be rebutted by the opponent, given that the opponent has accepted the evidence, established the pervasion by means of valid cognition, and the thesis is refuted by valid cognition. Uh, it is a correct consequence that cannot be rebutted by the opponent, given that the opponent has accepted the evidence, established the pervasion by means of valid cognition, and the thesis is refuted by valid cognition. Thus, it directly dispels the opponent's distorted conviction, which is the object to be eliminated. Brief the function. It is a correct. That last part in the thesis is refuted by valid cognition is odd. Anyway. They're repeating the correct consequence implying a proof, which I think we had down earlier. So I think we'll go with the earlier version of that. Um, let's see. This, thus it directly dispels the opponent's distorted conviction, which is the object to be eliminated, and it indirectly induces in the opponent's mind a valid cognition realizing the thesis of an inference on the basis of an implied proof statement that is characterized by the three modes of correct proof. That sounds right. In, such, in ways such as these, this type of consequence is a method to help others. The function of a correct consequence not implying a proof is as follows. It directly dispels what is to be eliminated. The opponent's distorted conviction by way of its being a correct consequence that cannot be rebutted by the opponent. I see. The second version that does not imply a proof doesn't need a proof statement. It's just a simple uh, consequence where the opponent has already accepted the connection between the predicate and the subject and the evidence. The definition of a fallacious consequence is a statement of a consequence that is unable to overturn a manifest distorted conviction that the consequence is supposed to eliminate their three types. The consequence that states only the predicate owing to the lack of expertise of the proponent. Or two, a consequence that states only the evidence to a consequence where the predicate and the evidence are the same. Examples are respectively. It follows that it is a conditioned thing, as uh, a consequence that states only the predicate without giving a subject or, oh, sorry, a reason or evidence. The second example, a consequence that states only the evidence is because it's a conditioned thing, is incomplete. And three, where the predicate and the evidence are the same, it follows that the subject of pot is a functioning thing because it's a functioning thing. It's a tautology, so it doesn't do anything. Consequences presented in order to clearly bring three points of direct contradiction to the opponent's mind. Since an appropriate opponent for the correct consequence has accepted the evidence of that consequence to be established, he cannot reply the evidence is not established. He's already accepted it. And since he has established a pervasion by means of valid cognition, he cannot reply there's no pervasion. And since the thesis is the opposite of what he believes the subject to be, he also cannot reply. He also cannot reply, I accept. I think that should be, I do not accept. 
Thusly cannot counsel the consequence with a reply when the opponent ends up with three points of direct contradiction. None of the three replies can be given. At that point, it is the correct consequence. Hence, when the opponent, having seen the three points of direct contradiction, drops his thesis, the posited consequence is referred to as one that has become a correct consequence. It should also be understood that at this point, since the distorted conviction has been eliminated, the previous consequence is no longer a correct consequence for that particular person because the distorted reason does not exist. <laughs> And the correct consequence only has a, a, a life in relation to a, an incorrect uh, statement. So we'll end there, and next week we'll tackle, uh, to the best we can, the eight modes of pervasion of a consequence. You might run this by some of your family members and see what they make of this. Let's see if if they're overcome with uh, conviction in the Buddhist teachings. <laughs> Comments, questions, suggestions, announcements. Okay, I, I don't get it. I've always, <laughs> I've always been a very rational and logical person. So I understand, I kind of understand, but it's just like, does the person who actually wrote this, were they rational? Because when I was a kid, they used to call me Spock. That's how rational I was. <laughs> They'd always ask me questions about what's this, Chris, what's this, what's this? And why is this stuff like confuse me? <laughs> it confuses you up to a certain point. It's just the logical, it's just the language. The language yeah, structure language. that's confusing. Yeah, but I was confused at a certain point, and uh, I always blame it on them because, you know, that's my habit is to blame it on someone else. But it did seem like they were had a couple of places that were incorrect. But it's just like laboriously drawn out in a, a way that you want to sort of kill yourself at, at a certain point. Anyway, uh, Mary Beth, suggestions on that, thoughts, questions, comments? I think that we, we can't say that it's going to be finished because it was assigned, because it was assigned, <laughs> <laughs> because I think that's mistakenly believing that something can stand as evidence for something else, right? Just because it's assigned doesn't mean it's finished like right 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 so i said uh we will get through all of the reading because assigned it because. was assigned yeah so what, what's the subject we'll get through all of the reading all of the assigned reading because it was assigned so the subject is the assigned reading yeah, I think so, right? The subject is the assigned reading, and the predicate is... We're going to get through it? We're going to get through it. Look at Emily. She's like dying. What time of night is it in over there? It's uh, four... Midday, midday. 
Oh, okay. It's the midday <laughs> slump. I'm just sick. Oh, I see. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, your computer has like a scratch or something on the. That's something the with the light behind me. I don't know. Yeah, it's that's weird. The light, hopefully, it's the sun. <laughs> anyway, yeah, the yeah. Uh, the subject is the assigned reading, and the predicate is will be uh, fully reviewed in class. Finish it. Finish. Finish it. And the evidence is because it was assigned, and so the the um is the uh predicate a subject uh, is the predicate a property of the subject does the first mode hold <laughs> is the is uh reviewed a property of assigned reading no it could be no. it could be but not necessarily Oh, wait, the subject property is, uh, no, uh, the subject property is, is the evidence, the sub uh, property of the subject. So in this case, the evidence or the reason is because it was assigned. So is the assigned, was the assigned reading assigned? Yes. <laughs> so it, it, it's okay on the subject property. And then the forward pervasion is all, um, is all um, assigned reading? Is all assigned reading reviewed, finished. finished. No, that's <laughs> the one. <laughs> it fails that one. That it's all assigned reading necessarily finished. It's not correct evidence. The evidence would be only time will tell. <laughs> the forward pervasion fails, and therefore the reverse it's, fails. It's so tricky. <laughs> I'm tricky. So that's fun. You could do that with your family, you know, come up with logical statements and and uh, try to apply the pervasions. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Let's uh, conclude, and we'll we'll pick up where we are. And uh, we have a couple of review classes in the syllabus that uh, so we'll be okay. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Um, but at some point, you know, we could like uh, come up with like a list of like Dharma statements that we all like know, you know, um, like all beings can become enlightened because they possess Buddha nature. And see, you know, if those hold water. Anyway, thank you very much. Have a wonderful evening and week. And Emily, feel better and uh, your family and hope to see you all again soon. <laughs>